In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Listen to my prayer, O God. Do not ignore my plea. Hear me and answer me. Evening, morning, and noon. I cry out in distress, and he hears my voice. Cast your cares on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never let the righteous fall. Glory Glory be to to the the Father, and to the Son, and to the the Holy Spirit, Spirit, as it was in the beginning, beginning, is now, and and will will be forever. forever. Amen. As we look at the readings for this time in the Easter year, we're coming up onto what is Easter 6, or the sixth Sunday of Easter, uh, with Easter being Sunday number one. We take and we kind of shift our focus a little bit. Uh, For the first couple of weeks of Easter, we hear the stories of Jesus appearing to his disciples. We get the story of Doubting Thomas, the road to Emmaus. Uh, In some years, we get to hear the story of Jesus feeding uh, his disciples and and eating fish with them on the side of the, the lake. And the whole point of that, and food is a big part of a lot of these appearances, is to show that Jesus is physically raised. And so the first part of Easter focuses on the reality that the resurrection is physical and that Jesus actually is alive and no longer held captive in the tomb. He's not an apparition, he's not a ghost, but he has physically been raised. And this sets the stage for us in the second part of Easter when we begin looking at what does that Easter message mean for us? And the gospel readings actually go backwards pre-Easter to Jesus' long teaching at Monday, Thursday during the Last Supper, where he's talking to the disciples about there is a time coming when he'll be gone for a little while, and then he'll return, the world will rejoice while the disciples mourn. And in this Sunday, we hear the text of Jesus saying, in this world you will have trouble, but fear not, I have overcome the world. So we get this teaching of Jesus preparing his disciples for his death and resurrection, but we get to hear the teaching in terms of his preparation for his ascension. Because while we were not present for his death and resurrection, we are present in the waiting for his return after he's ascended into heaven. And so the the epistle readings, which actually aren't epistles because it's not a letter, uh, but the book of Revelation, so it's called the second reading, focuses in Revelation chapter 21 on what is promised for us when Christ returns for uh, his second coming. So Ascension is next Thursday, uh, about nine days away from now, when we celebrate his, his enthronement in heaven, and we begin that time of anticipation waiting for his return. And so the text for this week, the epistle reading, is Revelation chapter 21, verses 9 through 14 and 21 through 27. That is the appointed lesson. We are going to modify it a little bit by adding in the first five verses on Sunday, but we will not address them today for the sake of time, but we will focus in on 9 through 14 and 21 through 27. The Revelation readings, well, we've, we've had these since that, that very, um, that very, the second Sunday of Easter. Correct. Correct. I'm, yeah. I'm trying to remember how far back. Yeah, because um, I think I think once Easter has passed, it's Revelation readings all the way right up it until... It may be. I, I don't remember. I think you're right, because it's the... Um, it starts with the gathering of the people around the throne, uh, and so we're watching the enthronement of Christ in heaven, 
and the passage of, of time as they wait for the uh, arrival of the new heavens and the new earth in Revelation 21. Um, I think the interruption that I'm thinking of in my head there is on Easter 3 when we observe the feast of Philip and... Um, oh, it was, it was James, wasn't it? Philip and James, yes, we, James yeah, we, the Lesser. Right, and, and that was just a, an anomaly of the calendar right. this year. Um, yeah, otherwise it is Revelation readings and the only interruption is then Ascension, where there's, right. where there's actually a reading from Ephesians for, okay. for Ascension. Well, good. And so we are in Revelation again today, and uh, Revelation chapter 21, verses 9 through 14, 21 through 27. So why don't we start, Paul, with you reading verses 9 through 14. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the name of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Thank you. So we come up in Revelation 21 on what is one of the most beautiful moments in all of Scripture. It is an incredibly magnificent moment. John describes it as participating in a wedding, which is so consistent with the way that Jesus has spoken throughout the Gospels, the way the Old Testament prophets talk, the way we talk about the church being the bride of Christ. And so John talks about this like a participant at a wedding in which the bride appears for the first time, and there's that moment when everybody gets to see her in all of her glory for the very first time. As I read through this, and I think it's, um, it will be, this reflection will be in the sermon on Sunday as well. Um, I shared with you yesterday, Paul, as I was thinking about this, that one of the privileges of the position I hold at a wedding as the officiant is I get a view that nobody else does. I get to see everything because I'm not blocked by anybody else in the pews. I am standing up higher than everybody else. I get this really great view of what's going on. And this moment is so cool because the whole congregation has been turned around looking into the back, watching the bridesmaids come forward, smiling at them. But everybody knows that they are not the point of the show. And so, yes, it's nice to see them. Oh, they're beautiful, yes. But there's this moment when the maid of honor starts coming down the aisle, the ushers close the glass doors in the back, and everybody begins to wait. They almost don't pay any attention to the maid of honor. They're waiting for the moment when they can get a glimpse of the bride moving through the glass windows for the first time as she goes to take her position to get her dress arranged by her aunt one last time before she comes down the aisle. And then the maid of honor gets up front, the music changes, and I say, all rise, and the, the doors open, and there's this moment where everybody just breathes in all together because there she is. And it's that moment in the story of God's work of salvation for his creation that John is capturing for us right now. 
And he says, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a high mountain and showed me the holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. And so John is in that place where he gets to see everything laid out in front of him. And instead of the glass doors, it's almost like the clouds open and there's the holy city, the church of God coming into view in all of her glory for John to see for the first time. And he's the one that gets to tell us about it. It's just a magnificent moment. And Jerusalem, the church, is arrayed in all of God's glory, he says. It's the glory, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel. This is her gift from God himself, that she is able to be displayed in all of this glory, and it's given to her through Christ. It's the forgiveness of sins, her holiness, her righteousness, and everything that God has had for himself that we have not been able to see in its entirety because of our sin is now given to God's people. And that's what John gets to see in that moment. It's, um, I think it's interesting that it's characterized as being a city, Jerusalem, a city rather than a temple, because we tend to think of, of you're really arriving you, mm -hmm. at, at some place, it would be the temple, the imagery of the temple. Right. Well, and for much of history, when you would arrive at a town in Europe or the Middle East, what was the one building you could see? It was the temple. It was at the top of a hill. Well, if, if you even look at, um, at settlements, you know, in this country, right. the, often the, the, the high point of a community would be where they sited the church. And then they built a steeple on top of that. Right, right, just to make sure you couldn't miss it. Right. But, and, and when you go to Jerusalem and visit, the temple is on top of a mount. It would have been easy to see from everywhere. But we're going to see in the second part of this reading that Jerusalem is a holy city that doesn't have a temple. And so the city is the place where God dwells with his people. And so I think that that recognition that there is no temple is critically important because it sets the stage for what's to come. Because John's also telling us that the nature of things has changed. Jerusalem has always been the holy city, the place where God's people were gathered throughout the Old Testament. And they were gathered there because the temple was present. That's where you had to go to meet God. And John's saying that ends with Christ, but it ends because we're looking forward to this new city, not located in modern-day Israel, but a new city in the new creation in which there is no temple, and he'll tell us why in a few minutes. So, so in, in essence, saying everything has been recreated out of time and space. Mm -hmm. Correct. Yeah. So that is one of the tricky things about reading Revelation. Is, and, why, and why it's dangerous to maybe just right. take this as a casual Bible study and, and think you can understand right. the imagery. So when you're reading Revelation, it is stepping out of linear time in the way that we understand it. The numbers that are mentioned are figurative. Uh, they are representing different things. And thousands of pages have been written about what they all mean. And um, the key thing to remember there is John sees on the 12 gates the names of the 12 apostles. He sees his own name written on the gates. Earlier in Revelation, when he sees the 24 thrones around the the throne of Christ. It's the 12 elders of the tribes of Israel. 
and the 12 apostles. John sees himself sitting on the throne in heaven, but he's still alive here on earth. He gets to step out of time and see this reality that we can't fully comprehend and understand. And so he spends 22 chapters of a book trying to explain to us what he saw. And we're getting this, this, he's capturing these final moments. But you mentioned there's no temple there, or that it's a, a city and not a temple. There's some interesting things about this city. So it's a city that has a high wall. Well, why do you build a wall around a city? It was, it was for a fortification. Right, to keep people out. Right. Uh, that's another neat thing about traveling to Europe. You can still see some of those high walls in the cities that were built in the Middle Ages. Uh, they have remnants of them there. But when you build a, a city wall for protection, the one thing you don't do is build a bunch of gates because the weak spots in your wall then are all of the entrances you have for people to come and go. But this city, the holy city, has 12 gates built into the walls, three on each side. That is not a gate built for protection. It's a gate built for abundant entrance. It's everybody is able to come into this. There is no keeping people out. So what is the purpose of the wall then? Well, the, the reference of the wall is hearkening back to the way that God talks about the way that he protects his people, that for the rest of eternity, God's people will never have to suffer attack or temptation or affliction or trials or anything else that uh, we encounter in this world because in the new Jerusalem, in the holy city, God's protection keeps all of that out while at the same time providing gates that allow abundant entrance, maximum protection, but abundant entrance for God's people to come pouring in to the place that he has created for them. And as I had mentioned, the gates and the foundations are named after the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles, because as Paul writes in Ephesians 2, the foundation of the citizens of God's household are the apostles and the prophets. And so we see in the temple, or the not the temple, in the new city of Jerusalem, the continuity with the Old Testament, that what is coming is built on what God has already done. Uh, there's huge amounts of continuity there. And so we get this, and then sometimes we wonder, why do we skip verses in the readings? So the seven verses that are skipped, 15 through 20 for Sunday, are readings about the measurements. And if we were to read through that, we would find that the measurements all lay out in a certain way, and God creates a city that's perfectly square, and um, everything about the depiction drives towards the perfection of the city and the lavishness with which God has decorated it, the types of jewels and gemstones and things that adorn the city. And so we pick up with the end of that description with verse 21. Uh, would you read 21 through 27, please? And the 12 gates were 12 pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does, does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So this section, 
uh, is happens to be one of my favorite parts of scripture so when these uh, verses here are paired with verses one through five we actually get the epistle reading that i've chosen for my own funeral um, and so after having planned a lot of funerals with people it's um, important to write down the verses that matter to you the ones that you would like to have read at your funeral and so revelation 21 1 through 5 and then 21 through 27 are the verses that i have chosen for the epistle lesson for uh, my funeral someday and the reason for that is we get this picture of what life in the presence of god looks like so you mentioned that it's a city not a temple and john goes on to tell us here that there is no temple in the city because the temple is the lord god almighty and this is the climax of this whole section that the saints of god live in the new jerusalem in a state of righteousness perfection and holiness and so there is no need for an intermediary place to visit god that's the whole point of the temple in the old testament is you go there to make payment for the sins that you've done the whole point of the sanctuary here is to come to a place in this world where god distributes his benefits to you so that you can be receive his grace and his forgiveness and be made holy in his sight but in the new jerusalem the temple the church it's no longer necessary because we are restored to the garden of eden before the fall into sin where you can bump into god as he's going for his afternoon walk in the garden and everything there uh, betrays the splendor and the beauty and the glory that god has um, and one of the, the great things of this is the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on for the glory of god gives it its light and the lamp is the lamb and what we get in this is the reality that we are able to look directly at god's face so when we think back to the times when god's glory is revealed in scripture what do we see happen well we can start with moses or well, we can start in the garden of eden after they sin adam and eve hear god walking in the garden what do they do they hide they hide they can't bear to see his glory moses is on mount sinai receiving or speaking to god and he says to god let me see your face and what does god do no no puts him <laughs> behind a rock right. and lets him look at the shadow of his backside and then when Moses starts to talk to God in the taber or in the um, yeah, in the tabernacle, and he leaves the tabernacle, what does he have to do because the people can't stand to look at Moses? He has to put a veil over his face because God's glory rubs off on him, his face shines. And people can't bear to look at him. Isaiah is taken into heaven, and we get this beautiful depiction of what the floor of heaven looks like because he can't bear to look at the face of God. The disciples go up onto the mount of transfiguration with jesus and jesus transfigures before them and his glory is revealed to them and they shudder they're afraid because the glory of god is not accessible to people affected by sin and now all of a sudden john tells us in the new creation in the new jerusalem what's waiting for god's people is we actually get to see his glory because sin does not cause any more blemishes on us it does not affect us all of that is taken away and we can see God's glory in all of its power and we are the recipients of it um, and he goes on to say by its light the nations will walk the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it the gates will never be shut by day there will be no night there 
and they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. So when we read this, though, we need to keep in mind that verse 23, where it talks about there is no night there, is not a way of saying that there's no sun and moon. The sun and moon will be there because it's part of the creation that's been restored. But the sun and the moon, if you remember, back in Genesis, aren't there for light in the first place. The first thing God does is says, let there be light. It's not until day three that he gives us the sun and the moon for the keeping of time. Sun and moon are there for the keeping of time, and so they'll be marking out eternity. But they aren't needed for the light because God's glory, what, what Moses couldn't bear to see, what Adam and Eve couldn't bear to see, what Isaiah couldn't bear to see, what uh, James and or Peter and John could not bear to see, on the Mount of Transfiguration. That's the light that shines in the holy city. And it's the light of his glory that we will get to see for all of eternity. The end of this, I, I never thought about it being a connection to the Garden of Eden and the, and the actual beginning of scripture, but it does fit pretty nicely because it talks about uh, nothing unclean will ever enter it. Um, so that means everything, you know, to borrow an expression, is right with the world. Right. So before sin came into the world, it was the Garden of Eden. And here at the end of Revelation, the end of Scripture, we get the same kind of imagery. Right. And when we get into chapter 22, which is the next set of verses, I don't know um, if we hear, I hear it in, in service for Easter 7. I can't remember what the epistle is. Uh, it is uh, 22, 22, 1-6, and so when we get into Revelation 22, what happens next is all of a sudden New Jerusalem is described as a garden, a place where there's trees that flower with fruit for every month, where there are streams of water that are just pouring out uh, for God's people. And so we see this moment of a return to Eden, but it's not just Eden in the way that Adam and Eve saw it. It's Eden made better. It's Eden that bears all of God's glory and has no chance of falling into sin. And John sets us, allows us to see this moment come into fruition in the way that he writes Revelation 21. And it's an incredible gift that God invites John to this mountain to be able to see this image of what's to come so that we know what we are looking forward to. And it's for that reason that um, I've, I've chosen these verses for my funeral because when you pair it with the beginning of 21, we hear that um, in the news that um, God desires to be with his people. Uh, it says, a new heaven and a new earth have come, and um, a voice says, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and he himself will be with them as their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things that were written have passed away. And that's the hope that's laid out for us. Is all of those former things have passed away, and the new has come. It's a great moment. And it makes it very clear then why you would take the Easter season and you would... And you would put these readings from Revelation at that point in the church year. Right. Where else do they fit but in being able to see the glory that Christ won on the cross for God's people given to God's people? This is what his death and resurrection accomplishes for us, is the gift of what is waiting for us on the other side 
of his time in heaven. So as we reflect on that reality of the New Jerusalem, there are so many hymns that we can think about that mention the New Jerusalem. Uh, the one that comes to mind for me is Jerusalem the Golden, or I Want to Walk as a Child of the Light. That is the one In that, him there is no darkness right. at all. That is the one that I, that I thought of when you, when you mentioned that that particular uh, uh, passage was going to be your choice, that maybe you'd even choose that as one of your sermon hymns or your, your funeral hymns. Right. Well, I have not chosen as my funeral <laughs> hymn because... Oh, goodness, there are just too many to choose from. And, and actually, I was reflecting on that on Sunday during the closing hymn because it was the tune to For All the, All the Saints. And that is in my list of hymns. And part of, part of me has tried to narrow it down to four or five hymns, and part of me has said, well, maybe I should just make a list and let somebody else choose. But I don't know. I know that for certain I want to make sure I am Jesus' little lamb is sung after the placing of the pall, and that um, most likely for all the saints, we'll, I would choose as the closing hymn. And um, then it's things like, I know that my Redeemer lives is such a great choice, but so is um, uh, we praise you and acknowledge you, because it's got that great reference to the being surrounded by the people of God. Um, blessed are they, the recitation of the Beatitudes, is, is a great a great piece for, for a funeral as well. So I might just need to make a list of, here are other things I like, uh, pick what you choose, because then I've even thought, well, maybe it should reflect the season. That if it's Advent, lo, he comes with clouds descending would be a great option. If it's Christmas, joy to the world would be a fantastic way to end the service. Or hark the herald angels sing, or an away in a manger, take us to heaven to live with thee there. I mean, you could just go on and on when you start trying to pick favorite hymns. Um, have you tried to narrow it down for yours? No, no, and I and I always tell people that for me that's like trying to to pick who my favorite child is. I won't I won't go there either. I just <laughs> I, I love them all, right. so I won't I won't pick a favorite. Well, maybe um, you should make a list of your top ten. That way, <laughs> at least one that you don't care for doesn't make it in. <laughs> um, well, and there are a few of those, uh, but it's a good reminder that uh, that that pastor does keep on file of a list of information that that people have handed them. For, for both readings and for hymns right. in terms of pre-planning. And it's a very helpful thing, especially for your, for your family. You know, if there, if there are some things that specifically you want to have uh, happen at your funeral, it's good to just pass that along. It just makes the planning a lot easier. It is. It does make it so much easier. And it's so much more personal to who you are because of all of the questions that people are asked in funeral planning, from my perspective, I think the three hardest are, how many people are we serving for lunch? <laughs> that is the hardest question to answer. Followed by, what are their favorite readings? And then what are their favorite hymns? And I mean, I can give some guidance, but it is so, so much more amazing to see kids come to life when those things have already been chosen and they encounter what was important to you for the very first time or maybe we're reminded of what you were doing. And sometimes people pick hymns that would never show up on, a, on my radar. We had a couple of years ago, Thy Strong Word was chosen. Only time I've ever sang that at funeral was once. Wouldn't normally come up as a recommendation I would even make. Um, this past year, we had somebody who chose Holy, 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 because Trinity Sunday was her favorite Sunday. Wasn't even on my radar as one that I would suggest, but was incredibly meaningful for their her family because after they realized that, they're like, oh, yeah, she always cried on Trinity Sunday. 
because of that hymn. It was that meaningful to her. And, th and those are the things that only, only you can know. Right, yeah. right. Not, not me as pastor, not you but as only you, yeah, yeah. you as the listener can know are which are the ones that are meaningful to you because that reading from Revelation, it would be probably in the top 10 list of things that people might choose for an epistle reading for a lesson. But would people know that that is perhaps my favorite reading in the New Testament? Probably not, because it wouldn't normally rank as a, as a favorite for it. So, And I can't say that that's actually where I'm going to end up 50 years from now, um, but, you know, maybe. And that is true, too, because different, different hymns take on different meanings over time for people. And so it's important to let people know what your favorite hymns and readings are so that it does reflect your confession, your faith, the things that mattered to you, what gave you comfort as you lived. And so as we look at the readings for today, now that we've talked a little bit about how they're my favorite reading, uh, well, and that I have some hymns that automatically come to mind as I read it, what did you choose for a hymn for this uh, lesson today? Well, since we are still... Uh, well into the Easter season. This coming Sunday will be the, the sixth Sunday. Um, so uh, it's always appropriate to keep singing Easter hymns. And uh, because the last two weeks uh, we were uh, interrupted in our issuing of the podcast, we missed some, some very good readings, some additional readings from Revelation. Mm -hmm. And that's a little unfortunate because Revelation, as, as you've pointed out, has all this great imagery that fits so well with the Easter season. And for another reason, we, we've been singing uh, as part of the liturgy, this is the feast during the Easter season. And it seems like every year somebody asks me, well, why do we keep singing the, that same hymn uh, every week during Easter? Well, if you look at it as a hymn, you'd say, yeah, why are we doing that? But it's actually part of the liturgy. And it's the, the canticle, which is a, a, a biblical text that's set to music that has been... Um, uh, it was, it was created in the late 20th century to take the place of the Gloria and Excelsis as part of the liturgy. And that's where it, where it finds its right. home, right, fairly early in the service as a, as a hymn of praise. And the Gloria and Excelsis is the song of the angels from Christmas. Correct. Glory be to God on high and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. And so This is the Feast was written to give the Easter echo of that. And it's taken straight out of Revelation and was the readings for the second reading on Easter too. Mm -hmm. that, that is correct. So that, and that was one of those weeks that we missed, uh, unfortunately. But uh, it's, it's a creation of the later 20th century. So if you're talking about in terms of liturgical time, it's a rather newcomer it is to, very to, new. to, to the liturgy. And some traditionalists would say, well, why would you do that? that is, isn't the glory in Excelsis uh, good enough um, in terms of using it for the liturgy? And it is. But I think by using this as the feast, it helps to highlight some of those things, the themes of the Easter season better than right. the glory in Excelsis does. And I had a professor who reflected that he believed that every millennium contributed something to the liturgy, that every hundred years or so, there was something that was added to the liturgy that adds to the story of the church through time. And he argued that this is the feast would be the 20th century's contribution to the liturgical narrative. And I think he's onto something there, that that is going to be the, the, the piece that is added that withstands the test of time. 
And the reason to argue for that is it was just rapidly adopted. It was written by a Lutheran for Lutherans as part of the uh, uh, Lutheran liturgy, but picked up broadly across denominations almost as fast as it was written, which is not a normal trajectory for things to be adopted across denominational usage. That is true. Um, I should add, though, that uh, we as Lutherans are the only ones who consistently use it as a, a replacement for the glory and excelsis. Uh, but it may be catching on in other places, mm -hmm. and perhaps I'm, I'm just not aware of it. But, right. but it, yeah, that could be one of those contributions that stands the test of time in that way. Um, so I wanted to point that out, that, that the, this is the feast. If you, look at, um, if you look in the hymnal, there's always scriptural references in the margins that tell you where the texts come from mm -hmm. in scripture that are part of the liturgy. And you'll note that the, um, for the, uh, this is the feast, it's from Revelation 5, chapters 5 and, and 19. And so it's, um, it's, it's very closely tied to this time of year. And so that's why, that's why we use it, it's just to kind of reinforce that, that sense of season, seasonality that we have right. in the church. So if you're wondering what, why we sing this is the feast all through the Easter season, that is the reason. And we have two different settings. Um, we're using the longer one right now that has five verses and a refrain to it. There's a, a somewhat shorter version uh, that we used last year during the pandemic for, for obvious reasons. It was, it was shorter and it just kind of mm -hmm. worked that way. But yet we could still make that adjustment in the liturgy for that time of the church. Year. Right. And one of the things that we're kind of moving towards, because we also sing this is the feast on saints days. It's quite common that we'll use it as part of the liturgy when we observe a saints day outside of the Easter season. And so to keep that alternate setting of this is the feast on our lips, and some people do prefer that alternate setting, um, although I think the one we're currently singing is probably the more broad favorite of the two. More widely known, I would um, say, yeah. That for the non-Easter season, when we use this as the feast, we will likely use the alternate setting, which is a little bit uh, more brief um, in the sense that it doesn't keep coming back to the refrain over and over. So having said that, that is not the hymn that I selected for us to uh, look at a little bit more closely today. Instead, um, I chose uh, 462 in the Lutheran service book, if you happen to have it with you, 462. It's a hymn called All the Earth with Joy is Sounding. And the text is by uh, Stephen Starkey, who is a Lutheran pastor, a uh, very, very skilled hymn writer who's made a lot of contributions to our particular hymnal. In fact, of his over, over 200 hymns, uh, we have 25 of his hymns in our hymnal, which raised some objections when it first came out that, well, shouldn't we have far more hymns by Luther in our hymnal? Uh, wouldn't that make far more sense? Um, and the, the argument for using his hymns is they speak to us, I think, more in our language of today. And, right. that, and that's very important. Luther's hymns are certainly of great quality. But if, when you look at Luther's hymns, they tend to be um, kind of um, dense teaching hymns. But that was his goal. He wanted to use hymnody to, as, a, as a teaching right. tool. Uh, not and they tend to be very long. Yeah, that also. That also. And it's hard to sing 16 verses of a hymn because we are no longer out of a singing culture. And um, uh, I think language is also a very important consideration that you can translate Luther into English, but you have to be very careful 
If you want it to be poetically beautiful, you may have to sacrifice a little bit of the theological mm -hmm. content. Um, if you want to be theologically faithful, it may come off as maybe being a little bit dry, a dry hymn. Right. So the, the most successful thing would be to create a new hymn. And so Stephen Starkey has succeeded in doing that, in using the language and imagery of our time so that we can relate to these right. theological ideas in, in ideas and in phraseology that, that we're very much used to. So um, I think his, his hymns for that reason definitely deserve to be included in our hymnals. And, and um, I don't think there's, we should feel ashamed, you know, for, for not in, including as many Luther hymns for that reason. Right. So this particular hymn is his, uh, one of his Easter hymns, and it's got some great imagery that really ties in with the revelation of readings that we were talking about today. The first stanza, all the earth with joy is sounding. It's, it's um, yeah, Christ has risen from the dead. It's as if all of creation has come back to life, not mm -hmm. just Christ, but it's a renewal of all creation, which was the theme of the, uh, the, the revelation reading that we were talking about. Um, the, the last stanza, stanza four, the, the imagery in it makes you think of this as the feast. Praise the Lord, his reign commences, reign of life and liberty, Paschal lamb for our offenses, slain and raised to set us free, evermore bow before Christ, the Lord of life, adore. There's a lot of similar imagery in there too, this is the feast. And, um, and I, I think he, he captures, um, oh, let, Let's go back to the first stanza. He uses the imagery of Christ being the greater Jonah. Now, there's an image you don't see in hymns very often. Well, what's he talking about there? Well, Jonah was Jonah was in the whale for three days and then mm -hmm. and then uh, came out of the whale. So it's 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 a, a parallel with with Christ in the, in the tomb there. And it's also interesting to note, and I did I didn't know this before I started doing some research on this, that Jonah is the only prophet that, that Jesus, Jesus himself um, likened himself to. Right. He Jonah. talks about the sign of Jonah. Yeah, yeah. Yes, it, it really is quite remarkable. And actually, some of the earliest Christian imagery that we have is from the catacombs in Rome. And Jonah and the fish was one of the common symbols that we find in that early church painting. Almost comes across as church graffiti. Um, but those early church paintings, the two of the earliest images we get is Jonah and the Good Shepherd. Yet, yet today that image is, is not at our forefront at all. I have a theory as to why that is, but okay. um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I would think that the reason Jonah has kind of fallen out of favor stems from the, um, the critical view that too many Christians fall into of trying to look at scripture as mythology. And so dismissing the Garden of Eden as just kind of a fairy tale, the miracles of the Old Testament as just being people not understanding things. And so Jonah, when you start to do that, when you hack away big portions of scripture and discredit it as just Christian myth, Jonah falls captive to that. And he is dismissed as simply a, a typological story or a mythological story that's meant to teach us something about spirituality that's not actually true. And if Jonah isn't actually a true story, you don't need its imagery floating around anymore. 
Well, and you could almost say the same thing about Noah and the Ark, too. That right. That, that that's kind of falling into that same category. Right, where they're relegated almost just to the children's books. Right. Um, right. That if you picture Noah and the Ark, you don't picture Noah frantically building a boat, trying to save as many people as he can, preaching to all of the people who are helping, he's hired to build this boat, repent, get on the ship with me, and hearing them mock him. You don't picture that part of the story. You picture the animals two by two. Um, and Jonah, you don't picture a man in despair who's so caught up in his own self-righteousness that he can't bear the thought of a city being converted because he believes them to be too great of sinners to be worthy of hearing the gospel. And so he chooses to run the other direction, to get on a ship, to get out of Dodge. Nobody pictures that Jonah in despair and then being swallowed by a whale. The children's books paint this as kind of Maybe you think Pinocchio where he's inside the fish and he lights a little match and starts a candle and there he is inside the fish sloshing around. He's inside of a fish with stomach acid and whatever else the fish has swallowed. It's not a pretty three days. And then he gets thrown up. He's part of fish puke. So it's not the prettiest story to like sit and meditate on when, you're, when you take it out of a children's novel or a children's Bible. And so I think for that reason, we've, we've tried, not tried, but I think we've unintentionally let this imagery fall. And it's really a, an, an unfortunate thing um, because it reminds us of, of the grotesque reality of Jesus being in a tomb. Um, we tend to sanitize death to the point that this is just something we do or is handled for us by these other people. No, Jesus goes into a tomb and the women come back three days later with spices because he's already started to stink if he is in there dead. And so we tend to sanitize things, and Jonah gets cut along with that. I don't know that that's true, but that's my theory. Well, well we, can thank, so. <laughs> we can thank him for bringing that imagery back to right. us again, that, that we're reminded that at one time it did play a more, more prominent role in our, in our art. Yes. Sorry for my little... No, that's an interesting excursus. I, 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 I found it interesting. Um, but back to the hymn, um, the, uh, a lot of the hymns that, that Stephen Starkey has written, he starts with a melody in his head mm -hmm. and kind of writes uh, a new text to fit the melody that's already in his head. So that, uh, given that that's typically how he works, this is very classic in that regard in that the tune existed first. And it was originally paired with a tune that that's, uh, begins, All My Hope on God is Founded. I don't know if you've ever heard it sung to that text, but that was the original text. And another clue to that is you also have a very peculiar poetic meter. It's 8787337. That is a very unusual poetic Yeah, meter. you don't accidentally stumble into that one. No, you don't. And it's not, uh, not something, uh, a type of rhymed verse that everybody um, tends to light upon. So that's uh, some background about the text. Uh, the music is by Herbert Howells, who is an English composer, who was a, a student of uh, Stanford and Perry, and was the successor to, to Gustav Holst in the position that he had there. So he definitely walked in some very, very good circles mm -hmm. there, um, was eventually appointed uh, at the Royal School of Church Music. So um, definitely was a, a, a revered figure in English church music early in the 20th century. Well, knowing that about him, you can hear that influence in this tune. It, yeah, it, it's, it's definitely a British tune. Right. Yes. yes. 
And um, the name of the tune is Michael, which is the, the story behind that is he originally published the tune with, without a name, um, which reminds me of uh, Vaughn Williams. For All the Saints, originally that, that tune had no name also. So when, when they pressed him to give it a name, he named it Sine Nomine, which means in Latin, no name. <laughs> did you know that story? I did not know okay. that. Yeah, so Sine Nomine, the name of For All the Saints is it's no, no name. name. No name. Which in some way is really a beautiful name for the tune tied to For All the Saints because many of the saints would be people we would not know the name to. Yeah, very, very um, I think there's a nice devotional meditation in there. This tune was named Michael after, after his son. And uh, tragically, his son uh, uh, died at, um, at age nine from meningitis. So he decided to dedicate this particular tune, um, which according to the story, he, he just dashed off after breakfast rather quickly one day, but, uh, but um, when pressed to, to attach a name to it, decided to honor his son by naming it after him. So it's, it's named Michael. I love those stories. He just sat down and wrote it after breakfast one day, as if it's <laughs> no big deal. And it turns out to be one of his most beloved uh, hymn tunes. So I will propose that uh, we sing stanzas one and four. Okay. One has the uh, creation imagery in it that I mentioned and the Jonah imagery in it, and stanza four that, that kind of has a lot of the, uh, the similar uh, imagery to this is the feast of it. So starts kind of at the top of the melody. All the earth with joy is sounding. Christ has risen from the dead. He the greater tone abounding from the grave his three-day bed. Wins the prize, testimonies, Songs of triumph fill the skies. Praise the Lord, his reign commences. Reign of life and liberty. Paschal Lamb for our offenses, slain and raised to set us free. Evermore bow before Christ the Lord of life adore. Yeah, and, and for a for a less familiar tune, it's very approachable just because it has those those key features of a lot of stepwise motion or maybe singing a lot of the first, third, and fifth scale degrees that make mm -hmm. a lot of hymn tunes uh, easy to sing. As we were singing, I couldn't help but wonder about his um, verb choice in the uh, first verse, Christ has risen from the dead. A lot of Easter hymns choose is over has, talking about it as a, um, in the perfect verb sense of it has happened and continues to be happening and will continue to uh, be happening into the future as opposed to choosing a past tense verb, which indicates a single event. And so I was just contemplating why he would have chosen the, the past tense has instead of the perfect tense of is to say that he is risen in the past tense, current tense, and into the future tense. Yeah, naturally, I think I, think I would have chosen is. 
Right, because so many other Easter hymns do exactly that. Right. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I would be curious someday if I ever a chance to talk to him and run out of things to, to ask him, <laughs> um, <laughs> why has instead of is, because I'm certain he chose it for a reason. Knowing uh, Starkey and his work, he does not choose anything on accident. And if I had to hazard a guess, I would say it's because he moves directly into that comparison with Jonah. And so he's pairing those two historical events. He's placing them against one another. And try, trying to make has, the parallel a little bit closer. Right, yeah. And he's trying to hold those there's two the together. There's the story of Jonah and there's the story of Christ. And, and, right. Yeah, in the same tense. Right. Well, that's a good theory. I don't know. Things to wonder. But it's a good reminder that as we sing, to look for those things and ask those questions of why. What is the author trying to instruct us in this moment by the words that they've chosen? And because it's a newer hymn, uh, we can trust that that is the original hymn wasn't tinkered with by one of Correct. the many, many alts that are out there that, that like to adjust hymn texts. Right. Well, let us pray. Oh, Lord. Have mercy upon us. O Christ, have mercy upon us. O Lord, have mercy upon us. Our Father, Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Heavenly Father, send your Holy Spirit into our hearts to direct and rule us according to your will, to comfort us in all our affliction, to defend us from all error, and lead us into all truth. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Let us bless the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please join us for worship this weekend. Our worship opportunities are at 8 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. on Sunday, and on Mondays at 6.30 p.m.